Welcome to episode 29 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today, we are going to talk about genres. We're starting a new um, sort of a series with this podcast, and today we're just going to do kind of a general overview about genres in books. Yeah, and and specifically we're talking about publishing genre, because I'm sure in school you guys will have learned that, you know, genres of literature include things like prose, poetry, drama, and, you know, that kind of thing, but specifically we're talking about publishing distinctions Mm -hmm. that, honestly, they're pretty fluid. (laughs) They're not set in stone, and this is kind of the difficult part, but really... What it comes down to is if you walk into a physical bookstore and you see the different sections of your bookstore, in in the fiction section in particular, you know, you see like science fiction fantasy, you see horror, you see mysteries and thrillers, you see crime. Um, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about genres and publishing. Uh, those sections of the bookstore, essentially. <laughs> Kind of, kind of the best way to define genre that I can think of. Mm-hmm. So, um, since we're going to give you a big, this this is probably going to be useful for uh, querying writers more than I think writers of the deal, because often your genre will be dictated by your your publishing house and not necessarily mm-hmm. you. But <laughs> it still behooves you to know what genre your book falls into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so we're going to be talking kind of generally today, and then we have some podcasts planned where we'll delve a little bit deeper into specific genres and talk about the hallmarks of those genres and um, things like that. So today we're just going to kind of do an overview. Yeah, so I also want to make a distinction here in publishing between genre, which loosely defined, I suppose, is kind of elements these certain books have in common in terms of setting, plot, or whatever. For example, you know, you have historical fiction, so obviously that's any fiction that's not set today. You have um, science fiction and fantasy, and those usually have some sort of speculative element. And crime fiction, I think, speaks for itself. And romance, which is obviously a big category. Those are all genres, but when we talk about category versus genre... We're kind of making a distinction like YA is a category and not a genre. Um, And the best way I can explain that is that it's because YA is an age category. It's an, uh, that's it, that's it. It's just an age category, period. Because within YA, you can have all the genres. Um, So that's kind of the distinction I want to make there. So, let's kind of give a brief overview of just starting with general fiction. Basically, general fiction is is all the books that don't fit anywhere else. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, not joking, because, and you'll notice that too, I think, if you go to the bookstore and, you know, there is a science fiction and fantasy section, there's a children's section, there's all the stuff, and then everything else is kind of shelved in fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this does affect publishing in some interesting ways, <laughs> because a lot of people talk about things like commercial versus literary fiction, or chiclet, or women's fiction, and a lot of those books can actually fall into other genres. Um, but the, if they don't fit neatly into the genre categories, often they're just kind of shelved in general fiction. Um, examples I can think of, um, Michael Chabon is pretty much universally always categorized in just general fiction, and he's considered a literary, uh, literary writer, even though his most recent books have kind of become more and more speculative, like... The Yiddish Policeman's Union was kind of an alternate universe or alternate history of the United States, and 
uh, and you know the amazing adventures of of Cavalier and Clay were that was kind of historical fiction, so can kind of it's it's sort of a catch all. It's a it's a place where it's a catch all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that really comes into play too. This is one of those like behind the scenes industry things. The place where your book is shelved in bookstores is somewhat dictated by the BISAC codes that are applied to the book. Mm-hmm. And a BISAC code is a numerical code um, that relates to a specific genre or category. Uh, sometimes they can be really broad, like mystery. Sometimes they can be really specific, like thriller suspense within the mystery category. Mm-hmm. Um, but publishers will assign one or several. Sometimes there's a main BISAC and then a secondary BISAC code. But they'll assign BISAC codes uh, to their books. And then usually booksellers will shelve according to BISAC, BISAC code. Not always, but most of the time. Um, and so when you have these books that are kind of in between or could occupy more than one space, the publisher kind of gets together with marketing and sales and determines how they want to push the book, how they want to market it. Do they want to market it as general fiction or do they want to push it more into one of the genre fiction uh, directions? And usually they'll select a BISAC code in line with their vision for the book. Yes. Um, when I was an editor and I, and it came time to, usually this was done generally prior to launch, but it wasn't always final by then. It could change by publication date. But as we were entering all the information into our systems, um, there's a section where we'd have to choose the bisacks and they're like little drop down menus that are kind of pre, uh-huh. like they're pre-selected or not necessarily pre-selected, but like the first drop down menu would say like fiction, science fiction, fantasy, mystery, thriller. And depending on which one of those you chose, then like another sub menu would pop up with other options. Um, and that's kind of how it works. You know, it would be fiction, science fiction, fantasy, horror. That's generally kind of lumped together. Um, and then kind of young adult or children's fiction. That's kind of yeah. like a whole juvenile. juvenile. That's a whole separate category or genre. Within fiction, you could sort of break it down by historical. Mm-hmm. Um, I think women's fiction might have been a... I think women's, women's fiction, fiction is, is one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything in particular. They can, I know they can get really specific. So one of the imprints that I worked for was a mystery imprint. And so part of my job was entering in the BISACs that the editors had assigned. I did all their data entry. And so they would give me the BISAC codes and I would enter them. And for mystery, at least, because those are the ones that I did most frequently, they can get incredibly specific. It can be, you know, mystery, the main category, and then detective female like detective male, like and for who your protagonist is and so on and so forth. So you can either choose really broad bisacks or they can get very specific. You can really drill down into specific things. Yeah. Mystery and romance in particular, I think you can get very specific in those genres. And that has something to do with the readership, I think, which we'll get more in detail yeah. for those two, you know, for those particular genres when we get to them individually. But as a as a broad general overview, that's kind of it. You've got fiction, mystery, thriller, romance, science fiction, fantasy, horror, and juvenile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> those are your <laughs> overarching broad categories. Um, so let's mostly focus on just kind of what's under the fiction umbrella today. We mentioned historical fiction and women's fiction. It seems a little odd to me that there's actually a, like a subset of fiction called women's fiction. Yeah, that's some bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. <laughs> and I mean, there's a lot of great think pieces about this on the internet. It's, you know, there's very little that unifies women's fiction other than it's usually written by women and it usually features women's stories or stories about women. Um, and that's really the only criteria for women's fiction in general. Uh, you can tell a vast array of women's stories 
and have them be considered women's fiction. Um, you know, I, I know people are of conflicting minds. You know, I know that some authors whose work has been categorized as women's fiction really embrace the label. They have loyal readership, you know, and they're really, um, they really love their readers and their readers are dedicated and loyal. And so they kind of embrace that genre, uh, because it has done well for them. But I think a lot of people do feel that women's fiction is just unnecessary labeling. I mean, we don't have men's fiction, right? Men's, men's fiction is just fiction. (laughs) And it seems ridiculous because if you actually look at the stats of the people who buy books, it is mostly women. So pretty much men's fiction really kind of should be called out because they, on, on overall, they buy less fiction than women. It's not that they buy less books per se, but they buy less fiction than women. Fiction is Mm -hmm. predominantly bought and consumed by women. So it seems silly to have a, a separate category for women's fiction. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not great, but it's still, I mean, it's kind of the same thing for multicultural fiction, which is a label that is sort of kind of being phased out. Kind of, it still exists. Um, like back in the late nineties, early two thousands, there was kind of a big, uh, it was like a multicultural push, I guess. So you'd have sections of the bookstore, but they kind of acquired this, ghettoized reputation for the lack of a better word, you know, books would be ghettoized and multicultural that maybe if they were put shelved in the general fiction section, it would reach a broader audience. So the other thing I want to mention too, is that these genres do shift and change over time. Some come into fashion, some come out of fashion. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. So, and, and this is fiction in particular, because like I said, science fiction, fantasy and romance and mystery and thriller are slightly different. Um, yeah, so multicultural has sort of been phased out or is kind of becoming less of a thing, which is good. Mm -hmm. Because they're trying to fold those books into the general fiction Mm -hmm. umbrella. And, um, women's fiction, I, I mean, you still get that label generally in conjunction with the term commercial women's fiction. Now, 10, 15 years ago, it would have been called chiclet. Yeah, yeah. But it's no longer called chiclet. Chiclet doesn't really exist as a genre anymore, so it's become commercial women's fiction. This is what I mean by the definition sort of shift and change. Um, and let's let's go back to the literary versus commercial discussion, which we did have that conversation a little bit in our voice podcast, which I will link to, and I also talked about it a little bit on my blog what the difference between literary and commercial is. And it's really up to the publisher. (laughs) Yeah. It's, I feel like it's almost more about the packaging of the book too. Like it's the voice, which of course we spoke about, but you know, literary covers and commercial covers tend to be very different. Um, and, you know, the way that you cover a book, the same material, if you were going to push it as literary versus push it as commercial, you would design the cover very differently. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of nebulous in that it it's a literary and commercial don't mean anything in and of themselves except the meanings that we ascribe to them. You know, we identify something as literary and not commercial or vice versa. But that's based on what we, how we sort things. Yes. It's how, and particularly on the publishing side, when you acquire a book, when you package a book commercially, you expect it to have broad appeal. When you package a book as a literary novel, you expect it to actually have a narrower appeal. (laughs) And it's true. I mean... So you you have a book, and this is kind of the the math, such as it is that that acquiring editors do in their head is that you get a book and you think, okay, 
how am I going to package this? You do have to think about this at the acquiring stage. Um, so if you get a book and you don't know how to package it, you're going to have to reject it. But if you get a book and you say, okay, this is wonderful writing, it deals with some really you know, tough topics in contemporary society in a philosophical way, and it doesn't seem like it would necessarily have broad commercial appeal, so we're going to try and package it as a literary novel and push it for awards. Because if, you know, and that's kind of the point, because if you package something as a literary novel and push it for awards, that will hopefully bring more attention to it, bring Uh more eyes to it that may otherwise kind of get lost in the general fiction section. Um, Whereas commercial books, you think probably doesn't need that extra attention. I mean, if it's, if you think it is, a, I mean, obviously you want, in an ideal world, you would have both uh, right. commercial <laughs> success and, and literary acclaim, but sometimes, most times, it's, they don't really go hand either in hand. Either or. Yeah, it's, it's an either or situation. And, you know, we, there are plenty of think pieces and, and articles about, particularly, quote, as we mentioned before, women's fiction, which is seen as just inherently more commercial simply because women buy more. Um, and they're not often pushed for awards, and therefore they're not taken seriously, even if the level of writing is actually on par with, or in many cases, better than books that are pushed for literary awards. Yeah. There is this prevailing feeling, I think, that literary fiction is serious, and those are serious writers writing serious work, and it people give a higher credence to or more respect to quote-unquote literary writers or literary books than they do to commercial books. And, I mean, I know that when I was younger and stupider, I didn't read commercial fiction or genre fiction pretty much at all, with a few exceptions that I deemed worthy. I exclusively read literary fiction, and I did believe that it made me a better person for being reductive in those reading habits. I was totally wrong. Um, I actually almost read exclusively commercial and genre fiction at this point in my life. I enjoy it much more. Uh, I do still read literary fiction, but... Literary fiction is not where I personally believe the most innovative storytelling is happening right now. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not, I want to go where, I want to be where the people are, the way the little mermaid (laughs) sings. I, I want to go where the exciting stories are being told. And I really believe that the most interesting and exciting stories are being told in commercial and genre fiction at this point in time. Um, so I was really wrong, but when I was in my early twenties and when I was in college studying writing, I really did think that way. And I think a lot of people do think that way and it's difficult to alter or correct or counter that assumption. I mean, the only way that it course corrected for me was through working in publishing and meeting more writers and just broadening my horizons and reading things outside of my comfort zone because I was forced to for work rather than because I chose to pick something else up on my own. But when I expanded those horizons, when I read beyond my comfort zone, um, there was so much more value in that. And I realized how small and narrow minded I'd been and how much I was missing by being dismissive of quote-unquote commercial fiction, which is written by people as dedicated and as talented, which has prose that is just as moving and exciting and explores deep and nuanced themes and relationships in the same way that literary fiction is always given credit for doing. Yeah, this is why it's kind of often a packaging thing. It's, you know, it's, that's what you do. You think this is a quiet book, well-written, well-told, probably will be lost compared to, you know, other commercial fiction writers or commercial bestsellers. And of course, cause it, then that kind of gives rise to the term up market commercial, 
Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Which basically means this book, we think, is extremely well written and well told, but also has broad commercial appeal. Mm-hmm. And you often see a lot of those on the bestseller list, it's true. Like Kristen Hanna's The Nightingale would be considered upmarket fiction, uh, mm-hmm. commercial fiction. Um, uh, God, this, gosh, this was probably like a long time ago now, but there was um, like books by Lisa C. You know, she's considered, I think, upmarket commercial. A lot of these sort of fiction writers are considered upmarket commercial because they are well-regarded, well-respected for their craft, but also move a lot of copies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and everybody yeah. always wants to find that author. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who can do both, who has a foot in, in both worlds. Because often, too, I mean, like I said, the reason you push something as a literary novel is that you hope that it gets more eyes on the, the title. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And... And I'll be completely honest, literary writers make far less money than commercial writers. Um, it's just because the appeal of the book is smaller. And for whatever reason, you know, it, mm-hmm. whatever reason it is, it could just be that the setting is smaller, the scope is smaller, whatever, you know, it could, but it could still be this beautifully told, you know, with amazing prose and, you know, just really nuanced portrayals of relationships and all of that. But for some reason, the scope is small. That's when you make the decision, perhaps we're going to push this for awards mm-hmm. to get more people on it. And that's an important thing, too, that I don't know if most listeners are aware of. For the most part, publishers need to submit their books to be considered for awards. It's not like these people just consider everything that was ever published this year and they choose from everything and pick the best of the best. That's not how awards work. There are some awards um, for some, from some you know places that do something more along those lines. You know, there's a lot of fan favorite awards, especially in genre fiction yeah. and things like that. Genre where, fiction, that's much more... Where it is kind of like yeah. the voice of the people. But for the most part, uh, particularly for literary fiction awards, the publishers need to select from among their own catalogs the lists or the titles that they are going to submit for each prize. And of course, each publisher is going to be really conservative in the titles that they select to submit because you don't want, I mean, there's already going to be enough competition from other publishers. You can't have too much competition internally. So you're going to be very selective in the titles that you decide to submit for awards. Um, And, and it, it is, it's, it's only among those works. So it's not, these awards are not being given, you know, freely from the field. Yeah, you're not going to look at your entire list and say, I'm going to submit all of them and see how it goes. It, it doesn't work like that. Because, I mean, whoever, and, and awards can differ. Some are nominated, um, and many are juried. Many are, have mm-hmm. a committee that's reading all these books come in. And, and so they can't, these people can't be on top of every single book published in a year. I mean, that's just impossible, humanly impossible. So they, they have to kind of rely on what the publishers are submitting, what the publishers are pushing, also what the librarians are saying and what the critics mm-hmm. are saying. Like, they're not just going to listen only to the publishers, obviously. They're right, gonna, right. They're going to get that information from multiple sources, but it's still, you know, there's a push from the publisher as well. And I hate to say it too, this is out of the writer's hands. Yeah, no, there's nothing you can do about this. This will strictly be an internal decision. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, it just depends on the year. You know, in in another year, your book might have gone forward and been submitted, but not this year because there's this other book. You know, it's it's really um, completely out of your hands. It There's a lot that goes into the decision. And, you know, it just is what it is. Yeah. So that's kind of the broadly, that's really what it comes down is to perceived size of the market, honestly, Uh, because, you know, there are plenty of award-winning authors that actually have broad commercial appeal too. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so it's like I said, it's not a mutually exclusive thing, but it's something that the the publisher does consider. And I, I mean, when I was bringing books up to the Ed Board, and I, you know, and I knew too that it, the scope was small. What do I mean by the scope is small? I mean that there it, often that the cast is small. Sometimes it's just like a small group of people. It's very intimate in a way that's not like necessarily a coming-of-age story. The coming-of-age stories are often submitted for literary awards, but it's it's small in a way that's the the premise isn't what my old boss used to say sexy. <laughs> you know, it's it's not. It doesn't have this interesting, different location. It doesn't have an interesting time period. It doesn't have whatever concept or an idea that people would be interested in. It's really kind of a character study, but exquis- exquisitely written. Um, you know, those are the books that you think, oh my, these are probably where the scope is smaller, uh, the perceived size of the market is smaller, but the writing is amazing. So let's try and buy this and, and really try and push it for awards and to try and get people talking about it that way and to consider it a an important work if if we can't get people to think of it as a entertaining work. I mean, I, I hate to sound that reductive, it, and it really isn't that reductive. But in business, you do often have to make those sorts of decisions, particularly at the acquisition stage. So, you know, if you are on submission, we'll say you have on submission with a book and it is quieter, you know, it's a smaller story, it's contemporary or set or whatever, and you're often hearing the feedback that it is too quiet, you know, what that often can mean is that they don't know what the perceived market is for this. They don't think it's maybe big enough to justify buying. And it's cold, and there are a lot of problems with that, and it, you know, a lot of it has to do with the perceived biases of the people in publishing and all that sort of stuff. So I'm not saying that this is a good thing. I'm just saying that that is the state of publishing as it is today. <laughs> On that downer note... <laughs> Have I discouraged y'all yet? <laughs> we try to be realistic, but, you know, there's always, there's, I mean, we all do this because we love it, right? We write because we love it. We read because we love it. We enslave ourselves to the publishing industry for our careers because we love it. Um, so it's not all bad news. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's not all bad news. So that's kind of my piece about literary fiction versus commercial fiction. Um, everything else is kind of a designation. Again, this is under general fiction. And in fact, there, I don't believe there is a BISAC code for literary. No, there's just fiction. It's just fiction general. Mm -hmm. And you can get a little bit more specific. It'd be fiction, historical fiction, women's, but there's like fiction, Mm -hmm general historical women's and I don't know if there's a couple of others but that's it mm-hmm. so there's actually no bisac code for a literary book or a commercial book these are not genres as we define them they're it's way books are packaged and pushed yeah I think the others are pretty self-explanatory in terms of what historical is what women's fiction is um mm-hmm. So if we want to move on very briefly, because I think the other genres do warrant their own episodes to get into a bit yeah. more de- deeply. Um, but, you know, giving a broad overview of science fiction, fantasy, I think that makes sense. <laughs> I think if, you know, people know what science fiction and fantasy is, what horror is, um, mm-hmm. what romance is. And I do want to explain a little bit about romance. Romance... Almost as much as I think mysteries and thrillers and crime fiction have kind of set guidelines in their in their genre. For example, romance, the story must end happily. That is like the number one and the only rule, I think, in romance that you cannot break. That's why books like Nicholas Sparks is not shelved in romance, even though his books are centered around love stories. Not all of them end happily, and therefore they are not considered romance. Because that is the pretty much the only rule. That's the only rule. It has to end happily. Mm-hmm. It has to end with the couple together. That's it. 
Um, everything else can be a little bit more flexible and it could also get a specific, like weirdly specific in romance. Um, mystery is kind of the same way. Um, the hallmarks of mysteries, cause there's different types of mysteries. You know, there's like the cozy. Yep. Yeah. Cozies. There's thriller slash suspense, which are actually slightly different, but sometimes shelved together, together yeah. overlap. Yeah. Um, there is, um, what else do we have? I, I know all these, I'll, I'll look up my notes for the actual mystery podcast, but I worked for a, a mystery imprint. And so I saw so many of these cozies are really interesting because there's no, um, violence on the page, usually no sex on the page and no swearing. They're like the little old ladies solving mysteries. It's like but murder they are, she wrote. <laughs> yeah, it is. And they're they're evolving a lot. So we are seeing a lot more cozies with younger protagonists. Um, and they're pushing the boundaries a little bit. I think a certain category of swearing may now be somewhat acceptable in cozies. But um, essentially, there's no violence or gore. You know, the murder, the, the, the protagonist usually just stumbles upon a body. And it's always an amateur. It's not a police worker or mm-hmm. a detective or, mm-hmm. a, you know, a, a anybody. It's always just like, you know, a girl who owns a yoga studio finds a dead guy in her dumpster. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just <laughs> people happen upon dead bodies and then They're get Sucked, sucked into, sucked into yeah, being yeah. an amateur detective, a sleuth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, I actually like cozies. <laughs> they are they're, they're they're, fun. Yeah, they're fun. I think they're really fun to read, and um, especially on vacation, they're because they're usually they're fast paced. They, you know, there's a, a fast moving plot, but it's it's comforting because you know the violence is off the page, and you know, mm-hmm. and often they're funny. Sometimes they can yeah, be Yeah, they're funny. usually humorous. They yep. can be humorous. Um, and so there's something kind of nice about that. So you have a mystery to solve, and you're trying to solve it along. Usually you're trying to solve it along with the protagonist. Um, and you know that the characters you like, and they're usually all the characters are charming and funny and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, there's a show on Netflix. I think it's originally from Australia. Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. Mm-hmm. That would be an example of a cozy. Um because she's an independently wealthy woman who just decides she's going to solve murder cases, you know. And again, like Murder, She Wrote is, is a, an example of a cozy mystery. Um, so those are kind of briefly the, the other genres. Now let's talk a little bit about juvenile, which you can't see me, but I'm putting that in air quotes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, juvenile as a bisac encompasses... Everything that's not adult, YA, children's, picture books, everything falls under juvenile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, particularly in juvenile, there's, so publishing is actually kind of divided a little bit. There's adult and children's. Um, most of the houses, most of the imprints are either focused on adult fiction or children's fiction. Some imprints do both. But not all of them. There's actually, in fact, a pretty big divide between adult and children's. Um, uh-huh. You know, when I went on submission, so I mentioned previously that Winter Song, <laughs> my book is a perfect example of <laughs> of explaining the difference, I think. So there are a lot of books that fall into that in-between category. Um, there is a category of new adult, which... I worked, that's what I worked on, you know, with my boss at the time, we worked on this concept of a new adult category that's a, older than YA, but not quite in, you know, in the realm of other adult novels, which sometimes focus on like married people who are having marital problems or intergenerational stories, that kind of a thing. Um, so still focused on young protagonists, but without necessarily being juvenile. But to be completely honest, that's a really, really difficult category to navigate. Yeah. Because there is such a stark divide between juvenile and adult. Mm -hmm. And I don't really know why necessarily it's so stark. I think that's just the way publishing started, I think. Yeah, I mean, YA itself was not a thing when I was a child. Yeah, that's relatively there, new. Yeah. There was no, I mean, I'm 33 and when I was growing up, there the only quote-unquote young adult books we had were Forever by Judy Bloom 
and Sweet Valley um, High. Sweet Valley High. And I remember also 17th Summer by Maureen. Oh, I can't remember her last name. Maureen something. 17th Summer. And that one was actually repackaged. That was a book that was written, I think, I think it's set in the 40s. I don't know if it was written in the 40s, but it was, you know, the 50s or 60s, perhaps. I can't remember the details, but it was repackaged. And the copy that I had when I was like 13 or 14 was repackaged into a much more Sweet Valley High style of cover, which was, you know, what was popular at the time. And it had um, photographs of models instead of illustrations. But it was like bright colors and, you know, modern fonts and this photograph of this girl and this boy. And, you know, and so I went into it not realizing that it had been that it was set in, um, you know, such a different time period. And of course, you know, all the things that this teenage girl is angsting about are, you know, for a girl growing up in the nineties was like, why are you worried about this? Like being seen in public with boys (laughs) and like holding their hand and like, you know, just like all of this stuff that just didn't like, I didn't realize because it was just so the way it was packaged, I didn't realize that it wasn't, um, you know, a modern contemporary story, but that is one of the first like quote unquote YA books too. I think there were very few, it wasn't a category. It was all packaged as children's, even if it was for teenagers. Um, you know, there really was none of that when I was growing up. I think it was only when I was in college that that started emerging as its own unique category, which is really smart because teenagers have disposable income. And, you know, a lot of adults don't. I might make more money now than I did as a teenager, but I have a lot less money to spend on I know, right? whatever you I want. Bills, you have loans, right. you have yeah. mortgages, you have so, whatever. So. <laughs> so my disposable income is a lot smaller now than it was when I was 16. Um, so YA is relatively new. It used to just all be children's. And children's books even were... You know, there were picture books, there were early chapter books, easy readers, um, and then there was sort of what we would call middle grade today. It, it wasn't defined as middle grade, though. But it wasn't, yeah, it, it did not have that distinction then, and it was not as lush of a category as it is now. You know, really, children's fiction was picture books and chapter books. And And then then just kid lit, just children's fiction. Because I think, too, like like we said, YA is a very recent category. And by very recent, I would probably say that the beginning of the YA boom, like YA as a concept, like teen fiction as a concept has definitely been around since the 80s. Um, maybe even the seventies, really, if you think about like Paul Zindel, who wrote a lot of teen books with teens in them, the pig man, um, Mm -hmm. you know, you have Tamara Pierce. Um, so it, the concept is not new, but the category as it exists today was started by Harry Potter Mm -hmm. and I would say refined and took off with twilight that's really mm-hmm. modern ya as we know it began with those two phenomena because if you think about harry potter the the designation middle grade did not really exist when harry potter was first published that first book came out in 97 okay mm-hmm. it's 97 didn't exist really and harry was 11 so nowadays we would think of that as middle grade but that didn't exist then but as harry got older the books got obviously more emotionally complex and darker the way, you know, a lot of YA is today. And each, you know, and that, for those of you guys who weren't around during the Harry Potter years, like Kelly and I grew up with these books, literally uh-huh. waited, you know, we spent a vast majority of our childhood and teenage years waiting for Harry Potter. And the landscape of children's fiction changed with it because there uh-huh. were think pieces back then about, oh, you know, as Harry gets older, these books get darker. Are they still appropriate for children? And all uh-huh. this sort of, like, there was a whole bunch of hand-wringing, as there always is about YA. But Of course. And the thing of it, too, 
that gave J.K. Rowling a lot of freedom is that at a certain point, the fourth book is when it really jumped up in page count. Mm-hmm. And kind of the to- you can kind of lump the first three together, although the- book three is sophisticated, but you can still kind of say, okay, there's books one, two, and three, and then there's four, five, six, seven, um, is kind of where the series crosses over. And book four is where that change kind of happens. It's the page count jumped dramatically. It was um, the first real death in the series. At le- right. At least a hundred pages it went up. And that was another thing too, is that page count for children's fiction was always very strictly controlled because it was believed that children just wouldn't read for that long. Mm-hmm. Like they just wouldn't do it. And so all, even, you know, what children's books were being aimed at teens or anything, you know, prior to Harry Potter were all very slim. I mean, really slim books, not novels as we would think of them today. Like, and Tamara Pierce. Yeah, I was going to say, Tamara Pierce wrote the Alana Quartet as one book. And the children's publisher was like, it's too long. Chop it up. Yeah, chop it up. No one's going to read it. And Tamara Pierce has actually has a quote. Um, saying that she's grateful to the Harry Potter series because her publisher allowed her to start writing longer books because (laughs) Harry Potter had proven that a teenage and child audience would stick with characters and stories that they loved through large page counts. And so I think it's with the trickster duology and then all the books after that of Tamara Pierce's are noticeably longer. Longer. Um, they're like real, you know, several hundred page novels. And so, you know, but all of her earlier books, the Alana, the Emperor Mage books, you know, those are all really slim because they were written at a time when children's publishers just were really um, adamant about a low page count. Yep. And I think because they and also it has often to do with signatures and also the the trim size these books were published at there were many reasons they wanted to keep the page count low in addition to this weird belief that children wouldn't read long books <laughs> i mean kids do if it's engaging enough they're going to read whatever length it is if it's a engaging enough book as we said harry potter approved but so that's kind of the the i would say the birth of ya it's not YA as we know it today, but Harry Potter definitely opened the way for it. And post Harry Potter, because, you know, Harry Potter went from 97 to 2007. It's like 10 years. I think it's about 10 years, that whole series from the first book to the seventh Mm -hmm. book. During that time too, Twilight had come out. I think Twilight was first published in 2005, Mm -hmm. which y'all, that's 11 years ago now. Yeah. It might... Was it 2004 or 2005? I know I started Writer's House no, in 2006. Was, it was earlier And the first two books were already out. I remember now I that because there. I was in London. I was studying abroad in London when Eclipse uh-huh. had come out. And I hadn't heard of Twilight, you guys. I, I was studying abroad in London in 2005, and that's when Eclipse was coming out. And I was like, what is this uh-huh. book? I've never heard of it before. <laughs> I mean, I was in college at the time, but even so, I, I continued to read children's fiction all throughout my college years, but I had never heard of Twilight, so I was like, what is this? Um, you know, and a lot of people denigrate Twilight for many reasons, that I, some of which I think are completely unfounded and unfair to that series. Even if it's not my own personal cup of tea, there's a lot of ugh, whatever about Twilight that I think is, is unfair. Um, but you cannot deny that this is th- those books are responsible for YA as we know it. Oh, absolutely. Every book, not every book, all books now that are published in YA are publishing in a climate post-Twilight. Mm-hmm. These are characters that are older, you know, because often teen, teen fiction back then, before YA, before Twilight... Even if you had 16-year-old protagonists, the content was still somewhat younger. The uh-huh. tone was still somewhat younger, but that is not the case with Twilight. Um, it got much more intimate and close to Bella, 
you know, it, it was her story and it was much more, and those books of course are also really long. <laughs> um, so everything published today is in a post twilight climate. It's it, cause it also proved too, that it wasn't just teens reading. Right. That book had huge crossover into the adult market. And most YA does, to be completely honest. Mm -hmm. I think most, I know mo a lot of women my age, I'm 30, so I know a lot of women my age who read YA. I like to joke that I never left the kids section of the bookstore because, you know, I was, what, 20 when, yeah, I was 20 when Eclipse was coming out anyway, so I just kind of went from like kid lit to just YA uh -huh. and then I just stayed in YA and never left. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. Well, JJ was my guide to my reemergence into children's and YA because I did stray from it. I talked about my little literary only exclusive several years there. Um, and when JJ and I met and she was actually working on this middle grade novel and she loved children's fiction and YA and um, she started recommending things to me and I would get into them and really enjoy them. But then I didn't know where to go next. And so I'd be like, <laughs> well, you have to tell me what else to read because I'm, I'm so lost, you know, in this new, uh, place. So yeah. Yeah. But um, you never left. You were always there. I was always there. I mean, I was in my early twenties when John Green was publishing his book. He published looking for Alaska in I think 2006. And at that point I would have been 20, 21, so, uh -huh. you know, on the younger age, so like right in that kind of slightly crossover demographic. But to get around to my original point, the difference between particularly YA, because YA, there's kind of a bigger divide, I think, between middle grade and YA than almost than there is between YA and adult, even though there's a pretty big difference there because they're handled by two totally different marketing forces and publishing salespeople and everything. But so my book, when I wrote Winter Song, I thought of it as a YA novel because it has, um, an older protagonist. Well, not an older protagonist. She's an older teen. When I wrote Winter Song, Liesl was 18, which is an age you often see in YA. And it was a coming of age story. Um, but when I queried it and my agent read it and she and I talked about it. She says, I think she said that I think your book is adult. I think there's something to the tone of your tone of the writing and some of the themes and treatments I think is a little bit more adult than you would see in teen fiction. Plus there was other mature content <laughs> that you don't necessarily <laughs> see in, in, in YA or at least to the extent that I had written about it. Um, so it was bought as an adult novel um, and part of the reason there is a delay in my publication date because I was originally supposed to be published in fall of this year and it's been pushed back now to February of next year is because marketing and sales took a look at this book and said, we think it would do better YA. And there's actually, and there's substantively no difference. There is literally substantively no difference between the version of this book that was adult and the version of the book that is teen, aside from the sexual content, essentially. It's still there. It's just written in a way that's a little bit more appropriate for a young adult audience, which we can get into that topic at a different date as well. So the, the line between what is considered an adult book and what is considered a teen book can be blurry because you have books like Prep by Curtis Sittenfeld. That's about a girl in boarding school, high school. She goes from 14 to 18, but that book is an adult book. It's not shelved as teen. Um, or you have books like Naomi Novik's Uprooted, which is also an adult book, but is often seen as a teen book. Um, Pierce Brown's books are the same way. He's often considered YA, or a lot of people think of him as YA because he's a huge crossover into the YA audience, even though his books are actually published by an adult publisher. It's really who publishes the book that defines whether or not a book is adult or children's. And in my case, my publisher happens to do both. So <laughs> that was that was why <laughs> it happened that way. It worked out for me in that regard. So... Those are kind of broadly the categories, the bisacks, as we, as we had mentioned before, in fiction. 
So any last words at the moment? None, I think, for this one. I'm excited to kind of talk more specifically about other genres in the weeks to come, though. Yeah, me too. Um, And I think because there's room for flexibility and interpretation in each of these genres. Because obviously Mm -hmm. you're, you know... Uh, as as they say in Pirates of the Caribbean, they're more like guidelines than rules. <laughs> God, pulling out a really old reference. <laughs> All right. So, uh, what have you been reading? What have I been reading? I did just start something, and now I can't remember the name of it. It's um, Allison Goodman, Days... Oh, The something. Dark Days Club. There we go. That one. Mm-hmm. Um, I just started that earlier this week. And that's really it. I think I've caught your reading slump, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> I think I caught it over our G-chats or over Skype, like an infection. Um, I consider it just spring fever, I think. Yeah. I don't really want to be inside or reading or I just... You know, it's, you know, I, I probably shouldn't confess this, but it's the same thing with my day job. I just kind of don't want to be inside. I would rather do other things. Um, yeah, it would be nice if there were just, if we were on a school schedule with spring break, winter break, summer's off. Recess, I think recess. We recess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm still reading the City of Dreaming books. Um, thoroughly enjoyable but it's also a book that's easy to put down in many ways. Maybe, as I said, maybe because it doesn't have that emotional pull. Um, it's much more intellectual, and I can kind of read the chapter or two and put it down and, and not feel compelled to finish. Because, you know, we've had those books. Those are like the ones, the one sitting books that you get, and you're like, oh, I have to finish it. And it's like 2 o'clock in the morning, and you're like, no, I have to finish it. <laughs> And, um, so there's that. I also have on my library to be checked out Saga, volume one, the trade of Saga. I've heard amazing things about that, but I have not read it myself. I have not read a lot of graphic novels lately. Um, the last graphic novel I read was actually The Search, uh, which is kind of... And it was uh, part of the Avatar The Last Airbender universe, and that was the last graphic novel I read. And I read that, I think, a couple months ago. But I haven't read a lot of graphic novels or comic books lately, and I used to read a lot of them. A lot more than I do now, certainly. And um, so, but I've heard really good things about Saga, and I think maybe it's something, because it's not words, just words, it's art as well, maybe that's something else that... I can get into that will pull me out of my reading rut. <laughs> so that's it for me on that side. What are you working on, if anything? What am I working on? I am doing some artwork. Um, you know, my creative pursuits right now are doodling and drawing and and stuff like that. I think that's, you know, once I've finished writing and that's now it's back to my editor and it's gone off to production and... I should be seeing first pass pages probably in like a month or so. I've kind of moved on to other artistic pursuits as like a brain palette cleanser. Yeah, like a brain cleanser. Um, Some drawing. um, Yeah, I do most of my artwork is digital these days. Like, I feel like I've lost my touch for natural media, although I still love natural media. Like, I love ink and I love colored pencils. I still love those, but. I think things like painting. I don't think I know how to paint anymore. Like, what do you mean I can't undo? What, what, there's no, <laughs> what do you mean there's no Command Z like, on this painting? Why, why can't I do it that way? <laughs> so that's me. What about you? Um, I have not really been working on too much lately. Um, I do have a few more editorial clients that I'm uh, putting bids in on right now, but I have no contracted work. So yeah, just kind of doing nothing and kind of enjoying it. I know there's something really nice. It's I think it's the vacation mentality. I'm just like, I don't want to mm-hmm. do anything. I just want to zone out a bit. 
So any other media you're consuming? So I found out from my friend um, Sarah Cade on Twitter, uh, who also does another podcast, Odd Man Out. I found out from her that there is a Kingdom Hearts app game (laughs) on iOS and Android. Kingdom Hearts is my jam. I think I've talked on uh, the Pub Crawl podcast before a little bit about my um, very amateur gaming tendencies. Uh, I do enjoy it, but definitely um, on a on a not very entrenched level. Um, but Kingdom Hearts is one of those games that I just love, and I have never played any of the ancillary games before. They have two main titles. There's you know Kingdom Hearts one and Kingdom Hearts two, and I've played both of those. And there's supposed to be a Kingdom Hearts 3 coming out at some point, um, hopefully sooner rather than later, because I've been waiting for a very long time. But there's a few other games for other platforms, like for DSs and for other things, and I don't own any of those devices, and so I've never played any of those other games. But Kingdom Hearts Unchained is an iPhone app, and so it's free, and I immediately downloaded it and have been throwing my life away playing this game. It is incredibly repetitive. I mean, basically every level is the same and the story is not great. I usually actually end up skipping most of the cutscenes um cuz they're not true, you know, animated cutscenes. They're like two static characters with the little speech bubbles and mm-hmm. then you just keep tapping to mm-hmm. like read the words. Um and there really is no story to speak of because you kind of create your own character and so it's very generic so it can apply to everyone's individual character. Whereas the Kingdom Hearts uh titles do have, you know, an overarching story that I find more engaging than this. And it's very repetitive, um, but I don't care. I'm having so much fun, and I'm just going around leveling up all my Keyblades and, you know, just having a complete blast. And what it's really doing, which I suspect is the intention of the game, is just make me ravenous for Kingdom Hearts 3. It's just, (laughs) all it does is make me want Kingdom Hearts 3 so much more, um, which I'm sure that's what it was intended to do. So it's succeeding in that way. But I mean, really hours of my life I've thrown away on this game nice. so far. <laughs> Very yeah. nice. I mean, I love Kingdom Hearts as well. Um, yeah. I will probably hold off on playing Kingdom Hearts 3 simply because I do not want to get a PS4. <laughs> yeah. Like, really? It's not available for any other platform? <laughs> yeah, I hate that they do that. I really wish that they would make things available across more, you know, more generations of games, because I have a PS3, but I don't think it's going to work on a PS3. No, I think Kingdom Hearts is only coming out for PS4. Yeah, that really sucks. Yep. 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 I know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The only thing other than that is, um, David has begged me and begged me, and I finally relented to start watching the second season of Daredevil. And I made it through about the first 15 minutes, and then I just started playing Kingdom Hearts on my phone while he watched the rest of the episode. He's a couple of episodes in now. I sit on the couch next to him while he watches it, and I just do other stuff. I just, I don't know. I enjoyed the first season, but by the end I was kind of bored. I'm really not psyched about the way that television show treats women. Um... You and I were discussing earlier this week on Gchat that it's a super white show and yeah, not the that way it great treats, well, Asian characters about minorities. In yeah, Asian characters awful. in particular. Yeah, it's not. You know, it's just not great. And I, I did enjoy aspects of the first season, um, but I'm just, I'm not into it for the second season. So I tried that, and uh, it's a miss for me. Yeah, Daredevil. Mark and I started Daredevil, and it just. It wasn't our thing either. I don't like the Marvel MCU television shows as much as I enjoyed their movies, although I have, I think I have movie fatigue as well, and it kind of started with Age of Ultron. I was kind of like, okay, I'm I'm tired. There's so many movies to catch up on, and I was like, I'm only here for Handsome Space Labrador and his adopted puppy of a brother. 
or Thor. That's that's it. That's kind of the only Marvel character I really have any interest in in sticking with. And and I feel like because the TV shows are so grim. That's that's really my problem with Daredevil. It was just not even like it was bleak or anything like that. It was just grim. It it you know, it had moments of lightness. But overall, it just was, it was kind of noir gritty. And Jessica Jones, yeah. Jessica Jones was similar. It was, and I, I, I thought Jessica Jones was good. Um, yeah, I can't watch that one. Yeah, it's, it's, it's rough. Uh, I'll put it that way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm no sure I've heard great things. The second season. Yeah, I've heard great things and I'm sure that all of them are true and I'm sure there's excellence to be found there, but I just can't do it to myself. It's like, I can't do Game of Thrones. I just can't. Um, and I just won't, and I know it's great and I've even seen bits of it and I, I believe that it's great, but I just can't do it. Well, I gave up Game of Thrones last season because yeah. major things that I just was not pleased with. Yeah. Well, television wise, Mark and I are making our way through the unbear, the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt season two, mm-hmm. which has just come out. Which we're we're enjoying. Um, you know, Mark is still pretty busy. He'll come back from the hospital, it's probably seven or eight at night, and then he still has more work to do. He's you know doing notes for his patients and or doing research for papers. Um, but every night he comes home, he's like, "Do you want to watch the next episode of Kimmy Schmidt?" And so we'll watch like one or two episodes, and then he'll go back to work. Um, so it's it's nice to kind of unwind and and. I, I do. I think I want to be uh, Lillian, her landlord, when I grow up. That she's <laughs> she's like my idol, like just batty <laughs> stoop crone, as they call her. I think that's uh-huh. great. I think she's she's somebody I want to I want to grow up to be. Dare to dream, JJ. Mm. I think I could do it. I think I could. I'm <laughs> definitely within within reach of her. <laughs> Um, and I'm also about four episodes into my Korean drama, Descendants of the Sun, which I'm really enjoying. I, I mean, my mother has never led me astray with dramas before. You know, she always recommends ones that I enjoy. Um, but I was really reluctant to start this one because it's a military drama and I'm just not into that. In all of the kind of promotional posters and everything, Feature our characters. One is in uniform. He's in the Korean army, and the other one is, you know, obviously like in some sort of Middle Eastern country. And it's actually a fake Middle Eastern country, obviously. But you know, they're you know out in the the, the Middle East. And so I kind of looked at it, and I was sort of like, I don't know. I this is not really my thing. I'm not sure I'd be into it. Even though, basically, my mother recommended this drama to me because the main actress, Song Hye-kyo, is my celebrity doppelganger. <laughs> so she's always like, you need to watch this drama because Song Hye-kyo's in it. Um, but I started watching, and it is not what I expected. It is really witty and funny. And if I were to categorize it, it's definitely romantic comedy even though the backdrop is kind of military and he is a he's a captain the the he's a captain um but the military thing is not a huge i mean it, it's a part of the story but it's not like the focus of it which is what i was expecting the focus is the romance right it's not a war story yeah, yeah it's not a war story the focus is the romance and it's funny. That was kind of what I wasn't expecting. It's very funny. And um, so I'm enjoying that a lot. My mother keeps texting me and being like, oh, isn't Song Joong-gi so cute? And I was like, Mom, I'm his nuna. I'm older than he is. That's weird. <laughs> and she's like, well, no, you guys were born in the same year. And I was like, but I'm like three months older. That makes me his nuna. So I, that's just weird to me. Um, but yeah, that's that's the other stuff I've been enjoying. So... Nice. That is all for this week. Next week, we're going to continue our conversations about genre by talking about science fiction and fantasy. As always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it really helps other listeners find the podcast. 
Yes, and it makes us so happy every time we yeah, see a new we one. Do. We, <laughs> we love knowing that you guys um, find this entertaining and informative. So thank you so much to everyone who has reviewed. And if you haven't gotten around to it yet, uh, today is a pretty great day to do that. So if you want more pub crawl goodness, you can also go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at PubCrawlBlog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at PublishingCrawl. And you can follow me, Kelly, at BookishChick on Twitter or Instagram, or my website at PenAndParsley.com. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter, or my website, SJJones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, the author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. wordless. Yeah, no no other explanation, just bam. Just balls and balls. Moving balls. Moving balls.